Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. <laughs> Did I startle you? A little bit. I have and my this, volume turned up in my ears. Oh, this is Two Sober Chicks. Yeah. Is that better? I just want to point out we have uh, two sponsee. No, I shouldn't. The other one isn't a sponsee. We have a sponsee sitting in who is listening live to our recording, which is super cool. So she gets like the preview before it comes out. And in the background, Lisa can see this. That is a painting by Amanda, who is a listener become friend. Oh, that's nice. So it's like we have kind of like a little meeting going on with a virtual presence, like Mm -hmm. actual person, and then a representation of a person. We have, um, and when they say whenever two alcoholics gather, that's a meeting. So we're having a meeting right now. We're having a meeting. Speaking of that, we should uh, throw our disclaimer out there. We do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we do not represent any organization, religion, sex, denomination. It's just two sober chicks uh, sitting around, shooting the shit, talking about our recovery that's personal to us. And uh, both of us are, are members of Alcoholics Anonymous, so it's our personal experience. And we decided that we would like to help you Uh, Maybe you don't have a sponsor yet. Maybe you don't know anything about sponsorship. Maybe you don't want to pick up the big book. (laughs) So you don't know how to understand the big book. Right. So we decided that we would take you through a big book study, just like how it's been done with us uh, by our sponsors and how we do it with our sponsees. And so you can consider yourselves our virtual pigeons. You're our virtual sponsees as we take you through the big book. Uh, And we're on page XV in the fourth edition of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And today we're continuing on with the forward to the second edition. And if you're thinking how dry and boring is it to sit through a forward, just give it a chance. What do you have to lose? If you're driving, if you're walking, if you're doing dishes, like all you have to do is listen. You might learn something. You might have a renewed sense of interest in the program. We, this is just us passing on what we've learned. None of what we're going to talk about is original to us. We can't claim that we are any kind of geniuses or experts. We're doing what this program is, which is just passing along what we've learned from the people that came before us to the people that are with us or coming after us. Wouldn't it be cool if in like 50 years, this particular episode is being listened to? That would be cool. I mean, it's been what, 80 years? 80. The next world conference is in Vancouver, Canada, which is a trip mm-hmm. in 2025. And I don't know what number that will be. I don't know either. 83 or 87. I the went whole- to the 14th International Convention in 2015. So it'll be, I don't know. Listen, when it comes to math, I'm an imbecile. <laughs> so. Me too. (laughs) Me too. So let's talk about what we do know, which is the big book and things that have been handed down to us. So we're at Mm -hmm. the forward to the second edition. Uh, Like Julie said, um, not geniuses, just knowledge that we've been, that's been shared freely with us and we share it freely with other people. Um, So do you want to begin? Yes. My name is Julie. I'm an alcoholic. Forward to the second edition. Figures given in this foreword describe the fellowship as it was in 1955. So I have a note here that says this page talks about growth in AA from 1939 through 1955. AA grew to 100 
and 50,000 members in 16 years. So if you listened to the first edition, it opened saying that they are more than 100 men and women. So you definitely know that they were probably under 150 because they would have said we're more than 150. Mm -hmm. And then in 16 years, 150,000 members. That's awesome. Right. Since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Our earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already, continues the early text, twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics, recovered meaning from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, not cured, cured. Thank you. Not cured groups. Although that does happen, it's pretty rare there. I don't, there are very few people that all of a sudden just get recovered and drink and use again. I mean, why would you after you've gotten to the point where you walk into a 12-step meeting? That's another topic of conversation. Okay. Uh, Groups are to be found in each of the United States and all of the provinces of Canada. AA has flourishing communities in the British Isles, the Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All told, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries and U.S. possessions. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning, only the augury, which means prediction. Um, When I was taken through the big book, I would have to put in a box words I didn't know what they meant. Augury is prediction of a much larger future ahead. So, and the other thing that we learn from this, uh, see, we're learning already from the forward to the second edition. Um, so Bill and Bob meet in Akron, Ohio. So from Akron, Ohio, now we're in um, all the provinces in Canada, uh, the United in states across the United States. And now we're also moving into other countries, the British Isles, South Africa, South America, Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. So it's talking about this mushroom cloud explosion mm-hmm. of the message reaching alcoholics worldwide it's incredible mm-hmm. incredible growth uh, and they say this is an omen for a much larger future ahead uh, and i think the reason why we talk about you know omens and miracles and uh, the past is because we have to be we have to be mindful of all of these things our future growth depends on how we behave today this day uh, which is why in this edition, I believe we're also going to find out a little bit about the uh, 12 traditions, because after 16 years of this organization growing, uh, we're now starting starting to see the schisms between groups, people wanting to change things and do things differently. So now another set of, uh, we don't like to call them rules, traditions are born. And we talk about that in this this edition. Um, I'll pick up the spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker, that's Bill, and an Akron physician, that's Bob. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession. 
not his drink craving, but his drink obsession, because it was in his mind, by a sudden spiritual experience. You want to read more about a spiritual experience on page 567 in the back of your big book um, in the fourth edition. It's page 567. Some sponsors start there. I have done that. You start there because that's the whole linchpin of a program of recovery. So you need to get to the definition of what that is and what you're aiming for. It's like, um, I'm in school right now doing my master's. And before I start reading a book, I look at the syllabus to look at what assignments I'm going to have to do that involve that book so that I know what I'm looking for as I'm reading that book in order to fulfill what the professor wants me to do. So if the whole point of our recovery hinges on a spiritual experience, I want to know immediately what it is before I start my program and my journey. So I have often started their responses. Thank you. That's a good suggestion. What I usually do is every time a spiritual experience or, or awakening is mentioned, we go and we read it. <laughs> so Whoa. They, they, really they must know it off them. by heart after. <laughs> no, <that. it> is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we could do that now, or we could just continue reading. I think we should continue reading. However, Bill is, we're talking here about uh, Bob, sorry, Bill, this spiritual experience was when he was talking to a friend. This is another AA history thing that you can go and research, but this friend, Ebby Thatcher was very influential on, I always get this mixed up, Bob, Bill, 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 um, because Bill had seen how hopeless Ebby was in his alcoholic condition. And all of a sudden Ebby's found recovery and that had a huge impact on him. So that is an old school friend of Bill on page eight, paragraph four, apparently it says on my notes. Thank you. Yeah. It says, um, that in mind too, I have his name right next to an alcoholic friend, Ebby Thatcher. And that's not in the book. So how did I learn that? That was passed on to me from my sponsor. And, uh, you know, it comes up later in the book when we go through Bill's story. We learn of this guy. His name is Ebby. And then, you know, there are other books. There's uh, books on AA history and language of the heart, stories and letters written by uh, our founder, Bill Wilson. And he will, you know, identify him by his full name. So, but we wouldn't have known that if someone hadn't passed that information on to us. Mm-hmm. So this alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of the day. So do you want to give a brief explanation of what the Oxford groups are? The Oxford group was a Christian organization um, that built a basically a program of recovery on Christian principles that, and it was tried, they tried to implement these principles in sort of a recovery program but they just didn't work. They didn't fly. They had to be reworked. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is built on these principles that the Oxford group came up with. Right. I can't remember what. Do you remember what? (laughs) Go ahead. Do you know? The six? Yeah, I looked them up because a sponsee, a very um, charming sponsee asked me, do you know what they are? And I said, no, I do not but I have the internet so I can look them up. So the um, Oxford group, six steps, which our program was built around and off of essentially uh, were these one, a complete deflation. What are we deflating? Mm, Ego. Two dependence on God G O D 
Uh, now, Bill knew himself having trouble with religion in the past and being obstinate and defiant. A lot of uh, alcoholics are not going to like the word God. They're not going to be sold on it. So he develops the, the different language, the softer language of a higher power or a God of your understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, three, a moral inventory. Mm. Four, uh, their number four is confession. That's our step five. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five, restitution. Our step nine, our amends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number six for the Oxford group was continued work with others in need. In need. As step a, as 12. A general. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. And I was so glad she asked that question because I, I always forget what they are. So now I'm incorporating that into uh, a big book study going forward. I will have that information at the I ready. love that. I love that. This is, this is why I always say, Julie, like sponsors learn from sponsees and sponsees learn from sponsors. Absolutely. Like ways. Mm-hmm. I might not have thought of that. Um, so, yeah, uh, he had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our sobriety appears in the next pages from this doctor, the broker, Bill W our founder had learned the grave nature of alcoholism. I like the double entendre there, the uh, play on words. Yeah. Leading well, us and to- he learns about the problem from Silkworth, but then he learns about the solution from Ebby, which is cool. Yes. That's great. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, and the grave, uh, you know, this says a fatal uh, disease. It can take us to our grave. So the grave nature of alcoholism, though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford groups, like was mentioned, um, as alcoholics sometimes were obstinate and defiant. So he wants to adapt them a little bit. Uh, he so it says uh, he was convinced of the need. So that's because Ebby carried the message to him. He becomes convinced of the need for moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution t- to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. So Bill, apparently, when they, when it's talking about they could not accept, he could not accept all of the tenets, which is principles of the Oxford groups, what he couldn't accept is like, how tell me you're an alcoholic without telling me you're an alcoholic he couldn't accept the complete deflation of ego which was the first tenant <laughs> right but he, but he was convinced it says here of the need for moral inventory confession and and so on and so forth that is hilarious but it is in doing the moral inventory that you start to deflate your ego yeah it's in becoming aware of your character defects that that ego starts to get its first couple of beatings, its first couple of smashings. And then uh, earlier on, they said, you know, we, we want to work with uh, medical professionals and psychiatrists and religious organizations. And they do when the organization, organization is formed. And one of the doctors that they work with is a psychiatrist by the name of uh, Harry Tebow. And he talks a lot about ego reduction. So obviously, you know, Bill changes his mind later on. Well, and listen, you can't do steps one, two, and three, if you're not going to participate in your own ego deflation, like number one, admitting it takes an ego deflation. Number two, admitting you're not God takes ego deflation. Number three, spiritual principle is humility. We're talking about the steps. 
um, you have to have humility to hand it over to God. So there may, you, you're now getting a bird's eye view into why Bill had a hard time at the beginning getting sober. However, we are also not saying that if you don't get it, you're going to go out and drink. Some people get to step four and are like, okay, now I'm starting to get it. We don't ask you to like it or believe in it. We just ask you to do it and trust that the process will work for you. Yes. Okay. Do you want to pick up? Yeah. I also have, um, after that, I have a note here that said, if Bill's sobriety depended on calling his sponsor, Ebby from Akron, he might not be here today because Ebby was drinking again. Oh, Ebby was drinking again. So what, what he say, what that note is saying is that if Bill relied on Ebby instead of the necessity of a belief in independence upon God, he might not be sober today. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's why our sponsors can't be our higher powers. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the many reasons why I instill in uh, sponsees that, you know, don't put your sponsor on a pedestal. Uh, don't make them their, the only number in your phone. Um, yeah, they're a good first person to check your thinking with, but what if you can't reach them? Um, and one of the beautiful stories I've heard along the, along the way is from a sponsee who I was that go-to person for her for a long time. Uh, and then, um, she had started to enlarge her spiritual circle with other people in AA. And one day when she really needed people, because she thought she was going to drink, she couldn't reach me. She couldn't reach anyone in her phone tree. And then she got down on her knees and she prayed and the obsession was lifted from Mm. her. Oh my God. And she went to a meeting right afterwards and a woman, she shared her story and a woman in the meeting said, Um, You just experienced why it's dependence upon a higher power because your higher power is always there. There's no do not answer, do not disturb. They don't put you on hold. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no busy signal when you call your higher power, you call and your higher power is there. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I don't listen to many. And this person was talking about people who say, They've never been called to by God. This guy was talking about the necessity of God in your life in order to get through what's going on and getting closer to the truth and seeing what's really going on in the world instead of what we're being told is going on in the world. And he said, people have asked me, what about those people that say God hasn't talked to me? He says, God has talked to you every single day of your life. I can guarantee it. The minute you start to open yourself up to that power greater than yourself, you'll see it all over. You can't miss it. It's like, you know, when you go to buy your first car, you're buying a new car, and then all of a sudden you see them everywhere. It's just the power of what you're focusing on. I don't know one single solitary person that I have told, just pray, say, God, please reveal yourself to me. That has said, God never answered. It's all around you. And he went into the numbers. He was like, you know, the average lifespan is this many years, which means that every year God has spoken or called to you 30,000 times a day or something ridiculous like that. And I was like, it's true. You start to see it around you. And this, I'm, I love those like spiritual awakening moments. Well, what she had was a spiritual experience. If she took that forward, that's her awakening. Mm -hmm. Um, I've known of people that have same situation, couldn't get a hold of anyone in recovery. They've been at an event and gotten to a bathroom and got down on their knees around a toilet and have said the serenity prayer. And that's all they had. And sometimes it took more than one time. 
but mm-hmm. just the humility of that. I don't believe that any creator that sees that that display of humility would not reach the, his hand out and say, okay, I'm right here. It might not feel like what you think it will feel like or look like it will feel like it's often when our prayers are answered, you're like, oh, it was answered, but that's not the way I wanted it to be answered. You have to keep an open mind. You have to be willing to unlearn everything you think, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember um, telling Julie one time that I was jealous, envious of her because she would often talk about how, you know, she hears God, God speaks to her. I was like, I want God to speak to me, not audibly. God never speaks to me. And, um, and then we talked about, you know, how God speaks to us in different ways. And you were the one who taught me that saying, uh, ask God to give you a neon fucking sign. Cause I used to think like, how do I know what God's will is? How do I discern the difference between my will and God's will? And mm-hmm. one of the things you said to me was, um, yeah, ask God for a neon fucking sign, make it obvious, you know, yes. direct me. Um, and, and when you ask for that, it's amazing the phone calls that all of a sudden you get, or you bump into someone and you hear something, or you go to a meeting and they're sharing exactly on what you're struggling with in that moment. Yeah. Um, To me, that's God speaking to me. God speaks to me. Um, I've heard a guy say like meetings don't keep you sober. And, and I'm like, you know what? Meetings really do help because I can't tell you how many meetings I've gone to where someone is sharing exactly what I needed to hear. And if I hadn't gone to that meeting, I might not have heard that message. And then I might've stayed stuck in my own thinking. Who knows? So, yeah. I mean, we know what he's saying. Like meeting makers make it. I don't like that either because that would be relying on human aid. And our text tells us no human aid could have relieved our alcoholism. Right. However, it is part of a bigger program of recovery that absolutely helps. It's like when you're trying to lose weight, it's not just diet. It's not just exercise. It's not just water. Like it is all helpful. However, as long as you practice your program, those things are like, I don't know what it's like. The program is your meal, but these little things are your snacks that keep you going. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. And uh, he just shares it in the same way every day, all the time. And a lot of people, especially new people get defeated. They're like, what does he mean? I'm not sober. <laughs> I hope I'm never one of those people that Everybody knows that I'm going to say one of five different things that I consistently say every single meeting, you know, God bless them because they're showing up, but there have been more than a few where I'm like, I wonder which one of five quips this person's going to say, who's usually pretty negative (laughs) and not happy, joyous and free. It's the same thing. Oh, like you can basically mouth at the same time what they're going to say share is going to consist of yes which is not honestly disclosing you know right and we can't say maybe someone's hearing it for the first time and it's a like god shot but Mm. you know can't say that that's my favorite experience in meetings like there was this one guy and he always shared about it's the first drink that gets you drunk and the first time i heard it i was like that's amazing but then the hundredth time i heard it i was like can you not find something else to share about (laughs) yeah (laughs) judgment. It's one of my character defects, (laughs) you know, that you, we need to grow in the program, meaning what our perspective is and the things that feed us on day one should be different as we go down the line. That's growth. You're supposed to change. You know, I always hated that, that sentiment of like, you've changed. Well, I fucking hope so that I'm not the same as I was five years ago. That wouldn't be good. 
like life and earth is a school for where we're going is what I believe. So this is where we learn the stuff to grow us closer to God, to be better people, to be more helpful to others. Like we should be changing and evolving as time goes on, not staying the same. Because no. then you're like that story of like the, the high school head cheerleader or the quarterback who's just like the same person with the same memories and the same everything. They're just 45 years old now. And you're like, really? That's the highlight of your life? Like it's supposed to get better. Yeah. I, it, you just reminded me of a story with my sponsee where, you know, she was very intent on us being best friends from the moment we met. And I said, I'm not here to be your fucking friend. I'm here to help save your life. And I kept her at arm's length, but now she's one of my best friends and that's growth because we grew together. Um, and, uh, you know, I find that a lot of the people that I work with, we do become friends over time because we're sharing honestly, and we're honestly disclosing and we're vulnerable uh, with each other. I don't, I'm not the kind of sponsor who says, do as I do, as I say, and not as I do. I try to share my vulnerability, my mistakes, um, when, when I'm upset and how I'm disturbed. And then these are the tools I'm going to use. Like today, um, I was in a meeting and something disturbing happened and it kind of upset me. And I had to turn my camera off because I spent a lot of the meeting crying. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to do a 10th step, Hmm. um, on that. And, uh, and then I'm going to move on from it. And that's the great thing about I don't have to stay stuck. You know, I'm not a slave to my emotions and my thoughts anymore. Um, And other people's bias and hatred, you know, it can hurt still, but I don't have to allow it to continue to hurt me. And that was a great gift that my sponsor taught me. Like you can be a victim once, um, but are Mm. you going to choose to be a victim for the rest of your life or even the rest of your day? Every time I retell a story, um, I can re-victimize myself. So maybe use it as a great way to share or educate and then move on. Yep. So don't um, brand your forehead with the word victim for all to see. Cause we see it. Yo, we see it. You can spot a victim a mile away. And the great thing is I've seen many a victim walk into the program and become a victor just simply through taking responsibility and doing their work. Yeah. That's miraculous. This program is miraculous and life-changing. Um, yep. We are at prior to his journey to Akron. Mm-hmm. You want to continue? Sure. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker, Bill W., had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he had succeeded only in keeping sober himself. The broker, Bill W., had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. That is such a good healthy fear, by the way. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. That alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician, Dr. Bob. Uh, This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. This is where I have a problem with the Christian approach of praying things away or just Jesus will work. This conversation that I spoke about in the last podcast about the two people that called AA a cult, they were Christian, as am I. And they were basically like, if Jesus is the only answer, listen, I believe that spiritually. That's why I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very harmful to tell people 
who are alcoholics and addicts that just prayer will work, just the spiritual solution, which does relieve us of our alcoholism, but it requires a program of action. Right. And so that is just something that irks me so much. And we're seeing it here when his spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed is coming into play. So it is necessary to have a holistic approach of your spirituality and your program of action. Right. I always just put it in simple terms to like, you can't just say, dear God, please don't let me drink this as I'm holding a bottle. (laughs) It's like, God's not going to miraculously strike me with lightning or the bottle with lightning. I have to take an action, put the bottle down. I have to ask for help to help me relieve me of the obsession to not pick up the bottle. But there's a partnership. Exactly. You're working together. And as we are, as you say, we're going to hear in, in, um, Dr. Bob's, uh, story, um, that it's not just about finding God or believing in God because Dr. Bob was a very spiritual devout Christian, a man Mm -hmm. of faith. He had gone to the Oxford group, I think before. Um, and he was always, uh, praying to stop his alcoholism. And he just believed that, you know, for whatever reason, God wasn't going to help him. God wasn't going to save him. It wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bob showed him that you had to do action. And that action was the steps and working with another alcoholic. Yeah. So there's a whole system here. And listen, miracles happen all the time. For some people, God just touches his finger on their forehead and it just resolves. But the problem isn't, as we know, just the drink or the drug. It's the underlying issues that we have to address because that's what the what's driving the bus. And that's not something that God's going to sit in front of you and be like, okay, Julie, so here's the problem. We're going to go back and you have problems with your ego and forgiveness and whatever the things are. And I'm just going to take that from you. That's not how it works. God desires us to grow into better people. And it takes work to do that. And it always takes suffering. Yeah. Always. And why Rob, the gift of suffering is really hard to endure, but so necessary to step into who you're supposed to be. So God oftentimes is like, I love you so much. I'm going to let you suffer through this because what you need to learn from it is how you're going to come out and live a better life for yourself. That was uh, evidence to me when I asked my sponsor through tears, you know, not getting something that I wanted. Um, And I'm like, you know, why does God never answer my prayers? (laughs) Mm. And, uh, and he said, I think God does answer your prayers in three ways. Um, Yeah, sure. Hey, that sounds like a great idea. Mm, not so sure about that. Maybe not right now. Maybe you're not ready. We're going to hold off on that. And three, hell no, because I love you too much. And I always just heard hell no, you're not getting what you want. Um, But it was that extra element of no, because I love you too much. And you might not know it. And I might not ever reveal to you why your wish (laughs) is not being granted uh, through your prayer, Lisa. Um, but I love you too much that I'm going to save you from that experience. And sometimes it's because I don't know what is good for me and God needs to make that, that decision for me. Yeah. I had a pastor say there are two responses to your prayers. Yes. Or not yet. Not yet. Meaning once we die, you know, the cancer is not there. The divorce doesn't hurt you. The child hasn't died because they're with you in heaven. Sort of the Christian response to that is never, God never says no. He says yes or not yet. So, and as Julie and I come from different backgrounds, and sometimes we have slightly different answers, but I believe that both answers can be helpful. And uh, I love our, our shared experience, and you can take with it, take from it 
what helps you. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I believe in the threefold response. I believe he says yes, no, or not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, like, no, you're not going to get that man. That's going to beat the shit out of you. No, you're not going to get that job. So you make more money so you can snort it up your nose. No, you know, whatever it is. No, you don't PTSD. need. <laughs> right. So I think it's yes, no, or not yet, but yeah. I just thought I'd but, share that. But you heard the other experience too, which I love. Yeah. Yep. And I love you. I love you. Okay. Where are we? Uh, this physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve. Oh yeah. I read that. Oh, you did. Did I? (laughs) (laughs) Let's just try it again. (laughs) This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means. Oh, I read the first line to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. Mm. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. Have you heard those weird rumors that like on his deathbed, he was like whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I feel like I heard that somewhere and I'm like, I don't think so. He actually got sober December 12th, 1934 and passed away sober in January, 1971 with 35 years of or sobriety. Cool. Uh, this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. All right. And I think that we should pause there. So we're at the top of page XVII. For those of you who are following along, if you want to make a little note, we'll make a little note so we know. Who hates Roman numerals? Like, what number is that even? Uh, I don't know. 17. 10, 15. Okay, 17. 17. So yeah, Roman numerals, page 17, top of the page. Next uh, time we will start at, hence the two men set to work almost frantically. Hence, therefore. We will start there. Okay. And so this is the forward to the second edition as part of our big book study with Julie and Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We hope that you have a pen and a highlighter in hand, or if you're driving, keep your hands on the wheel and just listen along. Because you can rewind. That's true. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us on Two Sober Chicks. I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. Have a great 24. Odat. One day at a time.